1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the appropriation for our sins. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, I'm just going to do this now, but uh, Michelle, this is the coolest thing in the world, so I just, I always want it. I've always wanted stained glass, so this is the next best thing. Um, So if it's your first time joining us, uh, yeah, welcome. Um, We're a church that we care deeply about the Bible, and we think that scripture is um, very, very important because it tells us the true story of the world, the story of God. And scripture has an invitation to God's people and anyone who would be interested to read that story, to study that story, and to join in that story. And so we've actually dedicated this whole year to reading the story of God, to learning the story of God. You guys, most of you know we're doing the year of biblical literacy, right? Reading the Bible for ourselves firsthand to know what it teaches and then to be shaped by it. Uh, And then also on Sunday mornings, we've just been going through different portions of the Bible to kind of get that 30,000-foot view of what the Bible is really all about. And uh, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the character of Christ, specifically the character of Jesus the Christ. And so today, uh, we're continuing in that series. We'll do one more next week, and then we will be on to our last series of the year. Can you guys believe it? We did it. Like, when I first, if you, came, if you come into my office, which you're welcome to do, please come into my office. Come hang out with me. Um, it's on this side of the building. Stop by some time. But I have, like, this map of, like, okay, this is how we're going to do everything. And I write like a monster. So uh, it's, like, chicken scratch and terrible. But I remember when I first wrote it all out, I was like, there's no way. I'll never be able to do this. This is so overwhelming. And now I'm looking at it, and I'm like, we've got one more series, four weeks long, and we're done. We're done. Like, see ya. I'm out. You know, like, I did it, right? <clears throat> so, good luck after this. And, um, no, but I feel like the Lord's got new, good and new things for us uh, coming next year. So, in this series, we have considered Jesus the teacher, our rabbi, who calls us to be his disciples, to be with him, to become like him, to do what he did. We consider Jesus, who is the healer, the great physician. We looked at how Jesus didn't just heal people who were sick. He didn't just heal people who were diseased, but he came to do this deeper work of healing and restoration, healing from the destruction that sin has brought into the world and has been brought into our lives and into our relationships. Jesus is the healer. We looked at Jesus, how he is the Savior. and That was one of my favorites, I think. Jesus loves to seek and save that which is lost. He's all about seeking lost and broken people. 
Remember, we heard the stories about the woman, and she loses her coin and sweeps the house and turns it all upside down. And when she finds that one coin, she rejoices, throws a party. It's like, what is this? Who throws a party over, you know, a $20 bill or whatever? We saw how the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes out to find the one. And then, of course, the story of the lost sons. But all of this is insight into the heart of Jesus, the Savior, who seeks to save what is lost. After that, we looked at Jesus the servant, and we saw how Jesus' act of foot washing is symbolic of his sacrificial death for us. We must be cleansed by Jesus. We must allow Jesus to wash us, to serve us, to give his life as a ransom for us. But then, of course, that is to be also an example to us. We are then to follow in his footsteps. You know, the Christian life, it is about following Jesus. It's about being with Jesus. It's about becoming like Jesus. It's about doing what Jesus did. But we, we always have to remember that the cross is central to the work of Jesus. Following Jesus is the cruciform life. It's death to self. It's self-sacrifice. That's the way of Jesus. And so we are called to follow in his footsteps, to wash one another's feet, to serve one another, to put one another's needs before our own. And in this way, we put the life of Jesus on display. Now, today we come to the character of love. And I was just thinking about this as I was driving to church this morning. This might not be the best sermon I've ever given. And actually, it might be the worst sermon I've ever given. But you know what I will say? This is the most important sermon maybe I will ever give. I hope there are many more times that I will be able to talk about the love of God, but the love of God is the most important thing that we can know about God. God is love. Love is not God. God is love, and this is so important that we keep that central to our lives as individuals, as a community and as a community and individuals who are in mission with Jesus, the love of God. Now, the Bible has so much to say about this love of God. Psalm 107, and I know I say this all the time, it's probably my favorite psalm, maybe. Uh, the psalms are so unique, right? But Psalm 107 calls all people everywhere to tell their story. Tell their story of how they have experienced God's great love, God's great salvation and grace. And as the psalm closes, it says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And that's what it does. It tells time and time again these testimonies of how God in his grace, in his mercy, in his steadfast love saved and rescued those who did not deserve it. Psalm 136 is a call and response psalm and for 25 stanzas proclaiming God's great works calls for the response for his love it endures forever. Psalm 33 and Psalm 119 tell us that the earth is filled with the steadfast love of the Lord. And we talk about this love of God many times. It's the Hebrew word hesed, and it means 
steadfast faithfulness. It's not the word that we often use. You know, we, we tell one another we love one another. Uh, we tell our, you know, our spouse or our children that we love one another. And there is some of that there. But many times we're talking about an emotion. I often do this when, when, I'm, when I'm marrying a couple. I talk about that what they're doing at, at this ceremony, they're making a covenant not for how they feel at this moment about one another, but they are making a commitment to love one another with this steadfast love. Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. John the Apostle, who describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, tells us that God is love. This is, this is part of, of God's being. So it means God doesn't just love. He doesn't just feel a certain way about people. He isn't just kind or nice. But love is a part of his being, person, and nature. It is one of his divine attributes. Now, you know what the Bible never tells us? That God is wrath. It never tells us that God is anger. But we do know that God does get angry. We do know that God does have wrath. But what we can understand from that is that is driven by God's love. Because God loves humanity, because God loves creation, he hates all that is opposed to human flourishing, to order, to blessing, to goodness. And he is determined to end that. That is God's love. So God's love actually drives his anger. God's love actually drives his judgment. It drives him to do something about the brokenness, the chaos, the sin of the world. Love flows from or out of God and has God as its spring or source. And so when we think about that, you know how we often make caricatures of God? He's the old man in the sky with a big old beard, you know, and he's, you know, maybe to you he's jolly, he's more like Santa, or maybe to you he's more the crotchet old man that's got the paddle with the, you know, drill holes in it, and he's just waiting, right? But we make these caricatures about God. But if we truly understand what the Scripture said, excuse me, what the Scriptures say, God is love, that means that giving what is good and serving the benefit of others is closer to the essence of God than getting and being served. Of all the ancient creation accounts, or the, you know, the cosmology, how the universe came to be, only the account of the Jewish people tells us that God made humans to be image bearers, to be partners, to be in covenant love with him. Every other story tells us that the gods made humans and then regretted it. And so then they made them their slaves, you know, and then, you know, and then even the flood, right, was gods, they were so sick of the noise, of, they just hated listening to the humans. And so they killed them all. No, God is love. And God is all about giving what is good and serving the benefit of others. God eternally lives to lavish his love upon his creation. I mean, when I read John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning, and, and we, we, John maps out this, 
eternality of Jesus Christ and how he's with the Father and one with the Father. And then he tells us that this word came and dwelt among us. What John is telling us is that he has come to bring us into the love of God. God wants to lavish his love upon his creation, so much so that he gives us the greatest gift of all. And yes, of course, I am getting way ahead of myself right now and what I want to talk about. But God eternally lives to lavish his love upon his creation. God loves because it is who he is. And Christianity alone teaches that God is himself a community, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who have eternally existed in a state of love, praise, and deference to one another. Always together, loving one another. This circle of love, praise, and deference to one another. You know, this is unique to Christianity. No other religion has in its roots this understanding of a God of love. This comes from a Judeo-Christian background. And, and yet we find people all over the world today, a vast array of different cultural backgrounds that just, no, if there is a God, he's a God of love. No, only the Bible reveals this God. Even in Islam, God is almighty, but he is not your friend. He is not your father. He is pure justice. He is not your friend. He is not your father. Christianity alone tells us that God is love. And of course, tells us about how God has demonstrated that love. (sighs) Listen to this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star, and it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win, and his erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. When years of time shall pass away in earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race. This is the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies a parchment made, were every blade of grass on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God, would drain the ocean dry, and the scroll could not contain the whole, though it was stretched from sky to sky. I did not write down who wrote this hymn, but I'll tell you what, this person gets it. That is the reality of the love of God. Where he could say to the rebellious children of Israel, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a crooked and perverse generation. I will give you up, I will punish you for your sin. Oh, how can I give you up? See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are always before me. God's love endures, measureless and strong, offering redeeming grace. It's incredible. So I would like this morning just to walk through 
a little bit of scripture with you, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a lot, but just talking about the great love of God. So the whole creation is full of God's gifts of love. Life is given to creatures. Earth is given to humanity. Woman is given to man. Children are given to woman. God gives humans dominion over all creation. He gives them mountain ranges and waterfalls, deserts and jungles, leopards, glaciers, sequoias, oranges, and peacocks. He gives rain. He gives light. He gives fragrances and flavors. Even though as a spiritual being himself, he has neither nose nor tongue. Thanks, God. Who likes to eat in this room? Isn't it a bummer when you have like a sinus infection or you've got like, you know, that yearly cold and then you get to go out to your favorite meal? Like, what's the point? I can't even taste it, right? And how, how incredible it is just the way that the nose and the taste buds all work together that we experience these wonderful flavors. And humanity, of course, has been able to, um, you know, just extract more flavor and, and combine all these things. And it's just incredible what we've been able to cultivate. But all of this is a gift from God who doesn't have a nose, who doesn't have a mouth that tastes, and yet he has given it to us richly to enjoy all that he has made. <laughs> He gives colors. He covers the earth with food, giving plants, and life-giving water. God creates orgasm and oxygen. He's not a sexual being, and yet he creates like these incredible experiences. None of these things are needed by God or deserved by us, but he gives them anyway. Creation is a gift of love. And that's what Genesis tells us, right? How's Genesis start? Good, 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 and very good. The garden is a paradise. Work is good. Sex is good. Marriage is good. It's all good. God gives good gifts. And even after the fall of humanity, the world is still filled with grace. After human rebellion, after just giving the proverbial finger to God, God still lavishes his love upon his creation. The rainbow guarantees goodness forever. The covenant of Abraham is for the blessing of the entire world. The law is good, restoring the soul. God is not just worried about the body. He's worried about the whole of humanity, the whole being. The land is good, the land of Israel. Great clusters are the size of wine barrels. The temple is good. It's the joy of the whole earth. And in these stories, there is no Trojan horse. There is no, you know, Prometheus type of twist to this. When God gives, it is for the blessing of everybody. But none of this compares with God's inexpressible gift of his son. For what can be compared to God himself? The source of life. The God who is love. 
The incarnation is the most extravagant gift in all history or literature. And the nativity story, it it draws out these points in a variety of ways. Remember the words of greetings that the angels give. Oh, highly favored one, the Lord, Yahweh, he is with you. Or you think about John and his gospel, from his fullness. What is the fullness of God? Can we fathom that? But from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. That is Jesus, is what he's saying. This is the fullness of God's grace. In this person, God's gift of himself is the most outlandish demonstration of love that God could possibly offer. Now, the stories of Jesus that surround him are just beautiful. If we just step back and just think about what Jesus does, but also the stories that he tells. So bear with me just a little bit longer. Everything he gives to the crowds that follow him is good. It's good news. It's sight. It's speech. It's ritual cleansing. It's hearing. It's bread. It's good, rich teaching. It's peace. It's social inclusion. Jesus sits down with those who are far from God and brings them in. It's forgiveness. It's table fellowship. It's life, right? All of this is in some way, though, a precursor to the gift of himself. The gift of himself of his own accord as a ransom for many. Think about Jesus' parables. They strikingly reinforce the picture of God as the irrepressible giver. Even when the stories aren't about God. Listen to this. This is amazing, okay? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. And this is not like, I came up with all this. I stole this from... Once there was a farmer who scattered seeds so liberally, most of it didn't take root. Have you ever thought about that in the story? It's like... Do you even know how to farm? <laughs> Once there was a king who forgave a debt of 10,000 talents. Who does that? Once there was a vineyard owner who gave people far more than their work was worth. Once there was a father who gave away half his estate to his rebellious son and then gave him a feast when he came crawling back home, having wasted it all. <laughs> Once there was a nobleman who gave three months' wages to his employees and then went on a vacation, right? Once there was a landowner who gave over his vineyard to tenants. Once there was a king who gave wedding invitations to every undesirable in the country. In fact, it's hard to think of a story of Jesus in which a God figures features and he is not characterized by giving away far more than he should. Oh, the bountiful, generous love of God. And Jesus, he's that parable of God. He's the one who has come to show us what the Father is like. And he's come, of course, to lavish the love of the Father upon us. There's even the miracles of Jesus, right? There's like this extravagance. It's almost like borderline wasteful. Um, How many weddings have you been to where they need 150 gallons of wine? Anyone? 
150. Jake has been to that wedding. All right, we're going to talk about that after. How about, you know, Jesus, right? He, we know that there's 5,000 people that he needs to feed, and yet 12 baskets filled afterwards. Jesus can count the people, but he can't count, like, this multiplication that he's going to do with bread. Like, why? You know what? It's just this overabundance. Or if you could heal someone with a word, why would, you, why would you wait three days and wait till everybody's around to do this like big old ceremony of celebration, raising this person from the dead? What's the point of walking on water when you could just say, you know, it looks like there's going to be a storm today. Let's wait and just go tomorrow, right? And yet, he displays all these things. I mean, you guys ever thought about the resurrection? Or excuse me, it's the death and resurrection. You ever read that portion in Matthew when it's like, and there was a great earthquake, and then the graves were open, and people walked into the city and showed themselves. And you're like, what the heck is happening in this passage? Who's, who's dead and now alive? Like, Jesus just died, and then these graves open up, and people get up and walk around. But again, it's just like, God, just kindness, love, bountiful generosity. Who produces 153 fish out of nowhere to the point where your friend's boats are nearly sinking because of it? It's like, Jesus, this is a little inconvenient, you know? As Psalm 107 says, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. And yet, these miracles, generous and gracious as they are, are so eclipsed by the gift of Jesus Christ himself. Every act, every deed, every sign, every word of Jesus drips with love. He is the love of God incarnate. And all of this culminates in his life-giving sacrifice for the world on the cross. Love is so associated with the career of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, that Paul refers to it as the new law for God's people the law of Christ. This is it. This is the, as high as the bar can possibly go. The law of Christ, to love one another as Christ has loved us. The love of God displayed in Jesus' self-sacrificial death for the world becomes the greatest display of love the world has ever known. And so John the Apostle we read this in, our, in the beginning. He defines love by the sacrificial life and death of Jesus. Beloved, he says, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. And in this, here it is, the love of God was made manifest among us. So here it is, right? You want to know what the love of God is? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Wow. This is it. 
This is the demonstration. This is the culmination of the love of God. I think sometimes, though, we can think of the love of God in a general sense. Of course, John 3.16 tells us that. God so loved the world. And we understand uh, John's theology, he uses the world as this you know, collective, rebellious order going against God, going against God's kingdom. God loves that world. Incredible as it may seem. But we think of God in, in, in this, God's love in this general way, it almost becomes impersonal. Impersonal. But it's incredible to me that this is not how the apostles and writers of the New Testament saw it. Yes, God does love the whole world enough to give his one-of-a-kind son. Jesus loves the world enough to lay down his life for its life. But there is a radical personableness to God's love as well. I mentioned this a moment ago, but John, of course, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, does that seem proud? Or is it just true? Is it just true? Like, if I say, my dad, I'm the son that my dad loves, am I being proud? Or am I just telling you about the character of my dad? Am I telling you about the relationship that we have? See, that's, I think that's what John's doing. And he had such a close friendship and relationship with Jesus himself that he could say, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, he tells us that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. Jesus loved these people. We're even told in the Gospel of Mark that when Jesus spoke with the rich young ruler, as he's talking to him, you know, about, you know, what's the greatest commandment? What do you need to do to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus challenges him. And he says, oh, you know, I've done all of those things for my youth. It says, Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. Remember, this is, this is God in the flesh. This, this is Jesus who, as he interacts with the religious leader, he knows their hearts. He knows what's going on in the background. So Jesus isn't just saying, oh, he felt really fond of this guy. No, he deeply loved him. And all of his brokenness and all of his confusion, Jesus saw right through him. He knew him, and he loved him. Paul, the apostle who believed that he must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ, the one who gave his approval over the murder of Stephen, the one who locked many people in prison for worshiping Jesus Christ as Messiah, said this after he had a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, what I'm trying to point out is that this is an incredible personalizing of the loving act of Jesus. Paul says, looking at the cross, Jesus' great act of love wasn't just general. It wasn't just that God so loved the world in a general, impersonal way. I just love everybody. But that the cross is proof that Jesus himself loves me, that Jesus loves you. 
that Jesus loves Paul, that Jesus did in fact give himself for me, that Jesus did in fact give himself for you, that you're not just like, just included because God's that kind, but no, it was for you, it was for me, it was for my sin, it's for my brokenness, it was for my healing, for my salvation. That's what was purchased at the cross, and the same goes for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. So can, when we think about all of this, when we think about Jesus the lover, terrible title for my study, by the way. I just could not think of another, you know, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the teacher, Jesus the lover. And I was like, eh, well, whatever. <laughs> All right, you get it. Can we say, though, with absolute confidence this morning, can we receive that word as I say that? Do you do that like, oh, not me, you know, like, well, you don't know me, Char, or you don't know what I've done. Can we receive that? with confidence? Can we say that about ourselves with confidence? And I'm not asking if you feel that you've earned the love of Jesus. <laughs> Who could do that? I'm asking if you know that you are dearly loved by God in spite of yourself, that he loves you simply because he loves you. Do you know that and can you say that with confidence? Grace and I were having an interesting conversation a couple weeks ago. I'm just feeling really overwhelmed just by life and circumstances. And um, Grace was just kind of pouring out her heart to me. And it's one of those moments where just as a husband, like, you wish you could just make everything okay. You know, you wish you could wrap your wife up and make her feel secure and, and loved in the way that she needs to. But you know it's deeper than that. You know, um, you can't really do that. And you can be a part of it, but you can't, you can't fix what's wrong. And um, so she left the house, and she came here to do some stuff. And um, I, I said, I was going to pray for her. She's probably finishing teaching right now. Lord, give her grace in your words. Amen. Um, she came here to do some, I think she came here to do that board back there or something. And as she was driving, the woman that's organizing the retreat she's at right now called her up. And it was so fascinating because this woman spoke to every single thing that Grace was telling me 10 minutes before. Just, I think there were like five things total, just hit every single one of them. It's one of those moments where like, God is reading our mail. And like, we don't have these moments a lot. You know, we don't. Our, our journey has been like, we walk by faith, not by sight. Like, this is the truth. Life is hard. <laughs> you go forward. Um, and it was, I started like getting teary-eyed just hearing her talk about this. And, and it reminded me of that story with Hagar. You know Hagar? She's the, um, the servant of Sarah, Abraham and she's the one that Abraham and Sarah take and they're going to try to fulfill the promises of God and so Abraham sleeps with Hagar and gets her pregnant and and then Sarah gets all jealous of her and she like abuses her and Hagar runs and flees from that and the Lord appears to her 
and he tells her like everything about her. And this actually happens twice in the narrative, even the second time that she's sent out. And she names God because of this encounter that she has with him and because of what he tells her about how he knows what she's going through, what she's experiencing. She says, you are the God who sees me. And you guys, I want to tell you that is true. Whether we have that kind of experience that Grace and I had a few weeks ago or not, he sees you. He hears, scripture says that he puts your tears in a bottle. He knows all of your sorrows and your woes and your, the weight upon you. And he loves you. He loves you. But that was just an incredible experience for us at that moment. Just, oh, you are the God who sees me. You're the God who cares enough to read my mail. Who am I that you would do this? If it's true for me, you guys, it's true for you. If it's true for grace, it's true for you. We're not special. We're not unique. But we are dearly loved by God. In closing, J.I. Packer says, there is a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic. Based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned by myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see, and he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that, for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. It is. It's a paradox, isn't it? The great love of God. And that is the amazing truth of God's love displayed for us in Jesus. We are fully known, and simultaneously, we are fully loved. And that combination... can, if you allow it, bring radical security to your life. There is nothing hidden from God. He knows it all. And he loves you. This has incredible power to transform us into people who want to love God in return. Who want to obey him, to please him, but also to be like him to love with that same kind of love. We were at a meeting for Foster the Bay yesterday here, and Philip, who is the um, founder, I guess, and leader, leader, the leader of Foster the Bay, he was just talking about when when the the opportunities first came for him and his wife um, to foster, just knowing the gospel, their response was, how could we not? How could we not? I really think if we fathom the love of God in this way, 
that God loves us because he loves us and he knows everything about us and he loves us. How can we not want to please him? How can we not want to obey him and and, and trust that he has good intentions for us? There's, there's, yeah, there's intentions towards our, our, to bless us, to do good. Look at the cross, look at what Christ did, look at his resurrection, look at his victory, look at his ascension, the giving of the Spirit, the victory of God. But that also it transforms us to want to love people with that same love. We want to lavish that love now upon those who have not known the love of God. So may this knowledge of God's great love for us, let it grow in you. Stir it up. Cultivate that. Sit with that. I'm asking you for this day, for this week, sit with that knowledge of God's great love for you and allow it to grow in you. As Paul said, that we may be able to comprehend what is the height, the depth, the width, and length, to know by experience the love of God which surpasses understanding. May this self-sacrificial love of Jesus grow in us so that all people will see that we are his disciples, that his life his character, his love is at work in us. And I'll just close with John 15. As the Father has loved me, so in that same way have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, remember that's the law of Christ, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another in the same way that I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Holy Spirit, would you, Lord, stir up the love of God in our hearts? Paul, our apostle, he he tells us that that's, Lord, that's what you do. You have poured the love of our God into our hearts. Or you have, as one translation says, shed it abroad in our hearts. Just buckets 
thrown against the wall like a Jackson Pollock painting. Do that, Lord. Expand our hearts and our minds to comprehend with all the saints the depth of your great love for us, your commitment to us. Lord, the good work that you want to do in us and the good works that you want to do through us. And I pray, Lord, that we will always be a people and a church that hold this great love as central to everything else. Lord, we are in a city and in a county that knows nothing of this personableness of love. It knows, or thinks it knows, of a universe that gives good gifts and blesses. And, and yet, we know the great love of God displayed in the gift of Jesus, that it was for me, that it was for you. And we pray that that true love would be made known through your church in this place. Amen.